Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there. We are back from a very exciting trip. We've had a great time meeting a lot of interesting people, haven't we, Richard? We have indeed, and we're. Uh, this is the first time we've been separated for about uh, two weeks because Linda's down in Salt Lake City and I'm up in Park City and... I kind of miss you, honey, because um, I have seen nothing but you for the last two weeks. Well, I guess I've seen a few other things. <laughs> uh, you've seen quite a few other things, but as we were saying yesterday, uh, we were getting just a little short with each other by the end, so maybe it's good to have a trial separation here for a few minutes. <laughs> I always think you're so cute when you're on the phone. I wish you were sitting right here beside me, but oh well. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, we have had an amazing experience in Latin America, Central America to be exact. Uh, we had a five-country tour in 12 days. We figured that we slept in eight different beds in 12 days. and um, None of them as good as our own bed, by the way. Uh, true, but they were pretty nice beds. We're not complaining. Um, but the people we met were so interesting. The things we did were fascinating, although usually it was just going back and forth to the airport and having really nice buffet breakfast. <laughs> well, let me just, um, <clears throat> we, we, we're going to use the, this trip as a kind of a background for talking a little bit about the challenges of raising children in a, in a poor family when you're, when you're really scraping for resources versus the very different but sometimes equally severe challenges of raising children in a very affluent family where there's plenty of money. They're, they present two very different kinds of problems, but we want to use this trip we've been on as a kind of a tableau or a background for that because uh, these Central American countries are really, really interesting. I love to go there. We've been there several times, and we love the the fact that while the countries themselves are small and close together, they each have a completely unique culture and environment and economy and so on. Some are doing much better than others right now. As most of you listeners know, Costa Rica and Panama are both very prosperous countries for different reasons. Costa Rica mainly because of tourism and Panama because of the Panama Canal and all that goes with it. But El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala having a struggle economically and in many other ways. But nonetheless, wonderful people that we were with. And and in some ways, countries are a little like people. Sometimes the rich countries have one kind of problem and the, the poor countries have another kind of problem, but they each also have their own charm. And I think sometimes adversity creates very good and very wise and very strong people. So that's just kind of a really quick overview of where we were and what we were doing. But in each case, we were speaking to parents, most of whom were very affluent compared to the average parent within their country. And so we were dealing with a lot of the problems that come with wealth. Am I going to spoil my kids? Are my kids entitled? Are they losing their motivation and their incentive because, you know, they can have everything they want? Now, that's a very, very different problem than 
talking to people out on the street in those countries, or you could put it in this country, too, in this context, where the problem is, how am I going to feed them? How am I going to be sure that they have shelter? How am I going to be sure that they have uh, a pair of shoes when it's time to go to school? And so, well, um, let me just interject what, what a variety of different problems. Um, it really is interesting because you think, what could, what problem could you have if you had all the money you could possibly want? A lot of these people that we were with had family businesses, fourth and fifth generation family businesses, and they were doing a great job of running them. But um, by the same token, the first place we went was Guatemala, and um, we went to a gorgeous home there. Um, the wife. Uh, our hostess was expecting a baby any minute and she still managed to have a lunch for 60 but part of that was because she had so uh, well first of all she had a restaurant and access to a lot of helpers Um, but on the other hand they had just um, actually announced their sale I guess they went public of their company and they so everyone in Guatemala knew how much money they had which was a problem, and we realized as we got out of the car, and this was true the last time we were in Guatemala, the doors were very heavy, and we could barely open them and close them, and it's because they drive armored cars. These people who have a lot of wealth and people know who they are and know who their children are, uh, they don't just have drivers. The drivers are bodyguards, and to me, that is a huge trial. Yeah, so um, so actually you're you're going right where I wanted to take this, Linda. The idea that uh, you know here in America the problems of of a family that has some affluence in terms of their parenting and the problems of a poorer family are very very different. But it's even more extreme in these Latin American countries, and we can maybe use the extreme examples as a way to talk about our own parenting problems, depending on what they are here. But when you get down in these countries, I mean, you've got, on the one hand, extreme poverty. You really do have a lot of parents who don't know where they're going to get the the food for their children the next day, and they don't know how they're going to um, manage to keep a roof over their heads. And and you've got kids who the average uh, education level in Honduras, for example, is the third grade. That's the average of how far kids get. In school, so you've got those very, very poor, desperate, absolutely desperation situations for for parents who are poor, and then on the other hand, you've got this extreme wealth that's right there next to it. And you'd say, well, yeah, like you said, Linda, how could they have any problems? But you've got kids in these families who are really a problem because they're so entitled. They know they'll inherit the family business. They don't think they have to work. They don't think they have to do anything. And strangely enough, it's a perfect example of the grass being greener. You get some of these very wealthy parents saying, boy, I'm not saying I wish I was poor, but I think parenting would be a little easier if I was poor. And, of course, the poor people are saying, wow, it would be so much easier if I had a little money. Now, take those extreme situations, and here in the in the States, Neither one is quite so extreme, and most parents um, have a little of each. Most parents have some entitlement going on with their kids, but they also have some worries about can they afford the 
the college education coming up and can they you know and of course some parents are even more poor than that and really are worried about sustaining their children and whatnot but i guess the thing we're trying to say to start off the program today is that parenting is never easy there is no situation none where parenting becomes an easy task and here you know in latin america a lot of the people we were with had four or five live-in servants so you say well come on with a driver and a nanny and a gardener and a cook that sounds pretty easy to me but don't be deceived because the parenting in some ways is harder because the kids then no longer really have the incentive and sometimes it's it's ridiculous to the extreme Linda you ought to tell your story about the the most entitled child we've ever run across well, we did, and we may have mentioned this earlier when we were in Columbia just a short time ago. Uh, we were meeting with all the private schools in the uh, Latin area, and a principal was in our class, and we were talking about entitlement, and he said, I have to just give you the most extreme example of entitlement I have heard. And this uh, we this child was just irresponsible at school. I mean, if he dropped a pencil, he expected somebody else to pick it up. He couldn't do his homework. He uh, he just was totally irresponsible. So she, he said, we called the parents in and explained the situation and said, what can you think that you think of that you can do to improve this child's behavior? And they sat there and thought, and finally the mother said, well, we could have the maid quit washing him. And then she explains that usually he just he's nine years old, he stands in the shower with his arms out, and the maid washes him. Um, and then the dad thoughtfully said, you know, another thing we really could do is just have the maid quit feeding him during our dinner time because he doesn't like to be interrupted. He loves to play games on the computer, and he doesn't like to stop. And so she just feeds him his dinner while he plays the computer games. Oh, my goodness. He never put any food in his own actual mouth. So I guess the point of that story is there's no end to how extreme some of this entitlement situation is. But even on a much more modest level of living here in the United States, we still have a lot of problem with entitlement because parents follow their natural instinct to try to give their kids everything. And in some cases, that really works against them. They do, but it kind of depends on how smart the parents are. And those parents were dumb, I have to say. That was silly to to do that. And maybe, I don't know, it's, it's you shouldn't judge, I guess, because maybe they came from a situation where they had the opposite and they wanted to give their child everything they wanted, and you never know where it comes from. But most of the parents we spoke with were so bright and so sharp. They did want to know how to unentitle their kids, but... After a discussion in Costa Rica, uh, we had some of the teenagers come, and they were so delightful. You could tell they had been parented well, and I I said to one of the girls, their parents were leaving for the weekend to go to um, a holiday somewhere, and I said, are you going? She said, oh, no, no, I have to stay home and earn money because I have to get some money ready for college. I'm getting prepared for college, and I'm taking my SATs. And, you know, I thought, you know, that is smart. That is really smart. And so I think most parents are a lot smarter than that. But sometimes the difference between rich and poor is not 
that different as far as difficulty, as you mentioned earlier, Rick? Yeah, well, it's just a different kind of problems. I, we even had one I'm, One uh, father said, you know, honestly, I, you know, parenting can be so much easier if we could just honestly say to our kids, look, we, if you want to, you know, buy something, you're going to have to earn the money for it because we don't have the money to give you. Or if you really want to go to college, you're going to have to, save up some money because, or get a scholarship or something because we're not going to be able to send you there. And he was saying, I just think that would be so much more honest and so much more easy in a way than than us saying, hey, look, we've got lots and lots of money, but we're going to try not to give very much of it to you because we want you to become self-reliant and independent. So you see the point. We're just trying to set the stage this first half of the show. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll try to go a little deeper into the connection of rich or poor to how hard or how easy it is to raise children in today's world. We'll be right back. Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Now, you know, Richard, and here before, we are again for second half. Before you launch into the rich and poor, which I know some of the things you're going to say, um, I have to say that advertisement during the break reminded me that we also have spoken down at BYU within the last week um, to some wonderful young couples in the MBA program as well as several other graduate school programs. And we had so much fun. It was really amazing because those kids are also going to have some financial resources, most of them. And uh, so they were very anxious to know how they should handle their kids and so that they didn't feel like they were growing up in a, a, you know, a, a society where they could have everything they wanted. Yeah, that was really, and we, we spoke to the, the MBA students and the law students and the accounting graduate students at BYU and their spouses, and what makes BYU so unique in many ways is that most of these graduate students are already married, and, and a high percentage of them have children already. That's not what you would find at most graduate schools in the country, but that makes your point, Linda, that a lot of these parents are really scraping right now economically, obviously, because they're students, they're, they're trying to yeah. get through school, they're, they're taking out loans, and, and, and it's a lean time for them and their children. But, you know, they're happy, and that's how most kids are. That's how we were when we were in graduate school and had children. And you don't really think of yourself as poor because you look forward to greater earnings power later, and you get along just fine. And, and again, that's the point that... In some ways, having more resources than you need makes parenting harder than it would be otherwise. I remember we had a we had a group of students back at Harvard when we were graduate students there, and and um, there was one really unique fellow. And while all the rest of us were talking about, well, we hope we make this much money the first year, and we hope after five years we'll make this much money, and so on. He said, whoa, whoa, he said, I. I think of it the opposite way. I'm going to put a ceiling on how much money I'll allow myself to, to, to earn because 
I figure if I get more than that, it'll make my life complicated, it'll make my parenting harder, and it will spoil my kids. (laughs) That's true. That really made the rest of us stop and think for a minute, you know, and and we all have to think about that a little bit. I know, it's true. The thing that I was really so gratified to see, when we went into Honduras, Honduras was kind of a last-minute uh, leg on our trip. We didn't originally plan to go there, but they just begged us to come because we had one day in between two other appointments. So uh, when we told the people at the event the night before we were going to Honduras, they said, oh my gosh, you don't want to go into Honduras. That is the most dangerous airport in the world. We thought we were going to say city, but and they kind of meant that too. They said, don't go outside the hotel. Somebody's going to take your camera. Don't, you know, don't go here or there and so on. And I think it was really interesting to think of what they think of each other in Latin America too. But Yeah, that, we that is fascinating. And you're right, well, though. We, just, we, we, got online, we got online that night, and sure enough, the Tegucigalpa Airport is ranked in the top ten most dangerous airports in the world. It was number two on the list we looked at, only behind the airport in Nepal. Oh, <laughs> wow. It was actually kind of fun. It's in a mountainous area, and they just don't have very much runway, and they have to come down really steep and land and take off really steep. But, uh, but hey, you know, still alive, I think... So. I, I think that's where we saw the most stark difference between rich and poor because our event that night was in the most gorgeous place we've ever seen, right at the top of the hill, one of the most wealthy families in Honduras. But there were mm, maybe 15, 20 couples that were so outstanding. They were such good parents. You could tell they were doing a great job with their kids. They just wanted to tweak it and do better. And then um, as we went down the hill, we saw the beautiful lights. And then the next day, our driver, who was also a government official, uh, drove us through a festival that they were having. They only have it during the month of February. And she drove us through all of these stalls. It was like a carnival, um, like we would think of it a carnival. In fact, there were a few carnival rides and so on, but stall after stall after stall selling things. But what we noticed more than anything was this was certainly the the class of people that would you could call poor and poverty and so on, but they were all so happy. They were having such a good time, and I, I'm sure a lot of them were not happy when they go home when they went home or whatever. But we were struck by the fact that they had smiles on their faces. They were happy. They obviously didn't have all the resources that the people we'd been with the night before who are also happy, but it was just a totally different feeling. Right. So so you may be wondering, well, so what? Why are we talking about economics and parenting and so on? What does it really matter? And here's, here's my conclusion, and you may want to amplify this or add a different slant, Linda, but the bottom line is how much money you have in your family, as it turns out, is not one of the biggest factors in terms of raising your children. I'm going to repeat that. It's not really about the economics. You can find benefits and problems at any economic level you are. That's not the point. The point is, do we teach our children to be responsible? And that can happen on so many different levels. If you're a farmer, you might not have any money at all, but you might be able to teach responsibility because your kids gather the eggs or, or, or milk the cow or whatever. 
If you live in the city and you have very little resources, you may be able to teach responsibility by having kids that help with supporting the family. On the other hand, if you have a lot of resources, your challenge is still the same. It just is applied in a little different way. Your challenge is to have your kids involved in helping around the house and in doing the things that need to be done and letting them know that they are not entitled, that you're blessed to have a certain amount of resources, but that doesn't change one bit the fact that they need to learn to be responsible, to take care of their own things, and so on and so forth. So what really makes a difference in families, is, it turns out, is not the economics. It's how strong the family culture is, how strong the family traditions are, how proactive the parents are in terms of really doing their best with the children, how much love there is in the family. All these things are frankly vastly more important than how much money the family has or doesn't have. And so, and you may say, well, so why tell us that? Because we run into so many families that are envious of other families. I mean, one of the biggest problems in parenting is that we look at other families and we imagine that their family is better than ours or that they have an easier time than we do or that they don't have near as many problems as we do with our kids. And the fact is they do. They may just be a little different than ours. And so the real message of this show, or at least one of the messages is, don't compare yourself and don't envy. Just say, I'm me. I'm unique. I have these children. They are unique. It's up to me to formulate the right strategy to raise them to be responsible citizens and good people. And no one can do it for you, and no one can tell you how to do it because you are unique and your children are unique. You know, I think that you've said two really important things right there, Richard. One is to be proactive and to really, no matter what your economic level is or your religion or anything else, to be proactive with your family and to really have a plan of how you're going to do it. How are you going to teach them to be responsible with money? You know, how are you going to teach them to be responsible? And um, it really is the bottom line. I mean, it really is. Every Everybody we talk to is concerned with the same thing. But if you don't have a plan, if you just think, you know, I'm just going to try and get through this parenting thing, it, you know, it it's not as effective as if you really have a plan. I think our first plan started when we had four kids under six, and we realized <laughs> that we had to have a plan in order to make that work. And so um, we started with the plan of teaching children joy, which is our very, very first book. And then elementary kids, we realized, oh, what they need is to be learn to be responsible and how to deal with life and things and money and all that. And then teenagers, we decided it was so important for them to be more sensitive, to look for people who were in need and to be able to fulfill needs and so on and so on. So, you know, whatever your plan is, there's so many different ways to teach children what you want them to know. But if you sit down and have a plan, it works so much better. It really does. Now, let us just give you a little, we we appreciate, we find out more and more how many listeners there are that try to tune in every week. And we appreciate you, you serial listeners or whatever we might, term we might use, but, uh, Let's give you a little preview. We're we're headed out in a couple of days to be with 
two of our sons and their wives in, in New York City. They One lives on the Upper East Side, one the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Both of these little families just have one little daughter, and so we're looking forward to that. But from there, we're going on up to Boston where um, our daughter, Sadie, uh, and her husband, Jeff, will baptize their, their little boy, Charlie. Charlie Dean is a special little boy. He's named after my father, and he has the same birthday as my father. So uh, we try to get to the baptisms of each of our children, and I know a lot of you who are listening who are grandparents try to do the same. It's not always possible, but uh, I just wanted to say a quick word on the idea that as families grow up and spread out, and by the way, what a difference. I mean, U.S. families spread out all over the place. Latin American families tend not to. They tend to all live in the same place. And man, oh man, we found ourselves envious in many ways. They have dinner together almost every night. And almost every Sunday, they meet with their extended family, sometimes a hundred people or more, all getting together for dinner because they all live close together. Now, where that isn't the case with most of us, these events like a blessing or a baptism or a wedding or a confirmation or a bar mitzvah or whatever it might be become fabulous times to get the family together and to renew that extended family love. And um, we're going to talk a little about that next week, about whatever you are, whether you're a grandparent or a parent or, or neither, are you doing your part to try to keep the larger family in tune, in touch, uh, aware of each other, praying for each other, doing all the things that large families should do in order to be strong families. Yeah, I just have to close before we sign off saying how impressed we were with the family culture there. They eat dinner together every night, almost every night, at least five nights out of seven. Um, they make a point of talking together and when we said, you know, how many of you have family meetings? Says, well, we, we have a family meeting almost every night at dinner. <laughs> we thought, wow, right, that is great. really impressive. So um, we're, we're out of time. We love you as fellow parents, and we look forward to being on the road again next week, but we also look forward to being with you next week on Ayers on the Road. Bye-bye. <laughs> 